0: Unless you were alive in the 1980s, it's difficult to fully appreciate the phenomenon that was Michael Jackson's sixth album, Thriller. By 1984, everybody's parents had a goddamn copy of that album sticking out of their milk crate collection, with Michael in his white suit, leaning back and looking at your mom with fuck me eyes. The songs were solid, but not perfect. Beat It and Billie Jean are on side two. It was a fun record to spin at parties. And the title track, Thriller, was exceptional and weird. But it arrived at the end of November 1982, a bit late for Halloween. The album sold well, but not record-breakingly well. Not until about six months went by. Then a couple fortuitous things happened. The first was Michael Jackson's appearance in a television special in May 1983. It was called Motown 25, Yesterday, Today, Forever. That's when Michael Jackson unveiled his new dance. The moonwalk. Dude looked like he was walking forward, but his body was actually moving backwards. It was so damn cool, and it became a kind of meme. Every kid on the block tried it out in the hallways at school, and then MJ got the idea that he'd get a big-name director to shoot a music video for Thriller. This was the beginning days of MTV, and the videos were pretty rad, but mostly they were kitschy, silly little things. But Michael being Michael got John Landis to direct a whopper of a music video. Landis had just made an American Werewolf in London and was the go-to guy for schlock horror. When it was finished, Landis's music video was 13 minutes long, a short film. In fact, it premiered in cinemas before a print of Disney's Fantasia. And when it finally came out on TV in December 1983, that was it, man. That was it. People went wild. The whole thing, the album, the video, the dancing, the red jacket, it was all new stuff, unlike anything else out there. And the synergy of all that eclectic pop culture sent the album into the stratosphere. Almost 40 years later, Thriller is still the best selling album of all time. Just playing a sample of Thriller immediately conjures images of the 1980s. And it's always used to establish time and place and setting in TV shows like Stranger Things, because it's bigger than just a few songs. Everybody knows that. Put it on your turntable and try not to smile. I dare you. And whatever you do, try not to think of the 12-year-old boys that Michael Jackson slept with. Because we feel guilty for loving that album, right? We're midway through Thriller doing The Wolfman and it hits us, oh yeah, dude slept with kids. And it makes us cringe. If we like this song, are we condoning his behavior in some way? Are we turning our backs on a real crime? If the musician or writer or actor commits a major crime, are we still allowed to enjoy their art? Today... I'm going to tell you about a guy named Roland Bart, a philosopher who was still very much alive when Michael Jackson was doing his thing. Bart gives us an out. He tells us we can still like Thriller, even if the artist was a real creep. Let me explain. This is the Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACast. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash acast. Personally, I'm more of a fan of John Landis' films than I am of Michael Jackson's music, though I do listen to Thriller on repeat when I'm writing spooky stuff. But there was a time when I couldn't watch Landis' movies without feeling a little guilty. That meant no Animal House, no Blues Brothers, no Three Amigos, no American Werewolf in London. Why, you may ask? Because Landis was in charge of a movie set when the blades of a helicopter cut through three actors, killing them instantaneously. Two were children. The third was legendary actor Vic Morrow. This happened on the set of the Twilight Zone movie, which was a collection of short, scary films by the best directors of the time. Vic Morrow was playing a racist man who leaps into the bodies of minorities throughout time. There was a scene where he ends up in Vietnam in the body of a Viet Cong, being shot at by American soldiers, and this helicopter's there and there's two children with him. Well, there's a video of what happened on set when the helicopter lost control, but I implore you not to track it down. I watched it once out of morbid curiosity before I had children, and it's still stuck in that dark part of my mind. Landis was charged with involuntary manslaughter, but was acquitted. After I learned about the tragedy, it was the only thing I could think of if I caught any of his old movies on TV. I wanted to like them, but I couldn't separate the art from the artist. Should I even try? What are we supposed to do when the art we love was created by a criminal? Quick aside, I got lucky in 2012 when I sold my first novel, The Man from Primrose Lane. For a brief moment, I had the attention of the literati, that elite group of agents and editors who have lunches and offices within a block of Union Square in Manhattan and make decisions in dark pubs about who's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. More than one editor said my writing reminded them of David Foster Wallace. Spoiler alert, it most certainly did not. But that was the kind of thing you'd say to a new writer if you wanted to make them hard. Tell them they reminded you of DFW because every writer was aspiring to be him. I'm pretty sure every young male writer who debuted in the last 20 years has jerked off to a copy of Infinite Jest. But David Foster Wallace was a fucking creep. Just ask the writer Mary Carr, who was the subject of his laser-focused obsession for a bit. She kept saying no, she was not interested, and he kept doing, you know, gentlemanly shows of affection like shoveling her driveway and getting tattoos of her name on his arm and moving around the corner from her and throwing tables at her. And yet, have you read Consider the Lobster? It's fucking genius. Here, how about this one? Are you into fine art? If so, you probably studied paintings by the post-impressionist Paul Gauguin. Brightly colored depictions of Tahitian landscapes and the people who lived there in the 1890s. His work inspired great artists like Picasso and Matisse. Some of Gauguin's most beautiful paintings feature a native girl named Teja Amana. She was 13 when he made her his Vahin, a term that means a native wife the travelers take to their beds during their long vacations. There have been calls to pull his artwork from national galleries to cancel Gauguin 120 years after his death, and maybe it'll happen one day. But if those paintings had never been hung in the first place, would we still have Picasso and Matisse? One of my favorite movies of all time is Chinatown. Beautiful cinematography, terrific performances by Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, some of the best one-liners in film history. You're even dumber than you think I think you are. To tell you the truth, I lied. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. It was directed by Roman Polanski and he made a lot of other great films, too, that still stand the test of time and inspire generations of filmmakers. Rosemary's Baby, for one. In 2003, Polanski won the Academy Award for Best Director for The Pianist. But he couldn't accept the award on stage because he couldn't set foot in the United States because he raped a 13-year-old girl in 1977 and then fled the country. I talked about the crimes of Harvey Weinstein and the allegations against Woody Allen on the last episode, and yet I still watch Miramax films. I still love Annie Hall. Maybe not so much Manhattan, where Allen dates a teenager, but, you know, Annie Hall is great. And maybe you still stand over Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but but you wish Joss Whedon would take a long walk off a short pier. Maybe you still enjoy reading The Old Man in the Sea, but ignore the fact that Hemingway was a KGB spy. Maybe you like great expectations in spite of the fact that Charles Dickens committed adultery with an 18-year-old. We make kids read Catch in the Rye, even though J.D. Salinger groomed teenage girls. Jack London and H.P. Lovecraft were horrible racists. Norman Mailer tried to stab his wife to death. This is the age of cancel culture. And we have the best intentions. We're trying to make the world a better place. But does that mean burning books? Taking paintings down? Snapping records in half? If you want to get rid of every single piece of art ever made by someone who has committed a crime, what's left for us to enjoy? Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? That's about it. So what's the alternative? How can we have thriller and enjoy it too? I have to introduce you to a gentleman named Roland Bart. Young Roland was born in northwestern France in 1915. Before he turned one, his father died in battle during World War I. So Roland was raised by his mother, his aunt, and grandmother, and when he turned 11, they moved to Paris. At 20, he attended the Sorbonne, Paris's main university, where he studied classical literature. While at school, Roland caught tuberculosis, and his rehabilitation kept interrupting his studies. After graduation, he studied lexicology at a National Science Institute. Lexicology, by the way, is the study of words as symbols. Roland became fascinated with the way the symbols all around us are products of our culture and silently influence our way of thinking. This led to his work in semiotics, the study of signs and symbols in general. And this took him to some pretty far-out places as he became concerned with the impact of symbols in mass-produced news and advertising, and how we seldom think of how we're being manipulated by these things. For instance, advertisers understand that a slogan relayed in a certain font can be more powerful than the same words written in a different font. Would you still think Fords are built tough if the slogan was written in Comic Sans? Roland Barthes was a post-structuralist at a time when structuralism was all the rage. Structuralism is this idea that everything within human culture is dependent on a rigid and unseen social structure that shapes the way we walk and talk and act. It takes away free will and suggests we're merely semi-aware beings, performing the tasks we're destined to perform based on our relationship with that structure. Cogs in a wheel with the illusion of free will. Post-structuralists like Bart believed that life was a little more messy than that. While structuralism depended on common meaning and interpretations of signs and symbols, post-structuralism takes into account that some people will misinterpret signs because they're idiots or some will misinterpret them because they don't want to believe them. They want to keep their unfounded biased view of the world. In a way, like Einstein discovered, the universe is relative to the observer, and somewhere in that uncertainty, that's where the notion of free will can survive. In 1967, Bart wrote an essay titled The Death of the Author. In the world of literature at that time, many professors were obsessed with trying to figure out an author's intention for a piece of writing. What did Shakespeare really mean when he wrote to be or not to be? Bart said it doesn't fucking matter what Shakespeare's intention was, and furthermore, it doesn't matter who Shakespeare was, and it's all rather embarrassing that we care about it at all. Bart believed that authors, and and that includes musicians, painters, artists of all kind, artists are nothing more than mediums, really, filters of pop culture. All the artist is really doing is reordering the information around them into a new structure. Take Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad, for example. Every single word in that book had been written before, just not in that order. It was Egan who assembled those words in a new way and into a narrative that included a new and interesting structure. And she did this because her mind could review the world around her, all of the pop culture of the moment, and all the books she'd ever read by other authors who were inspired by the authors that came before and all the way back. These words and symbols and ideas were filtered through her lens and out popped the Goon Squad. Only Egan could write it, but our culture was speaking through her like Patrick Swayze was speaking through Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. In this way, the reader, the consumer of pop culture becomes more important than the author. There is no objective truth. It doesn't matter what Jennifer Egan's intentions were. It's how you personally interpret her book that matters most. Naturally, many authors, who are a class of people with unnaturally inflated egos, were offended. Others embraced the idea. Case in point, David Lynch. Look up some of his interviews online. David Lynch hates talking about his intention for things like the fish in the percolator in Twin Peaks or what Garmon Bosia really means. He wants the audience to interpret it however they want. And somehow, because of this openness, his stories tend to stick with you more than others. There's this apocryphal story about Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, who sat in on a college lecture about one of his books. He hid in the back so nobody could see him and he listened with growing anger as the professor interpreted his book incorrectly. He missed the whole point Asimov was trying to make clear. And after class, Asimov told him so, to which the professor replied, just because you wrote it, What makes you think you know what it means? So, who really wrote Michael Jackson's songs? Was it the guy who slept with little boys? Bart would say no. Michael Jackson was just the filter that our culture was speaking through and he should be regarded with as much reverence as a strip of cheesecloth. Who cares who performed Thriller? That's our album. You and me. The collective works of society as it existed in 1982 as seen through the lens of a disturbed young man. I can enjoy Chinatown because Roman Polanski is just some guy who put a lot of old shit together in a new way. You can appreciate Gauguin's brushstrokes because those are our brushstrokes, the brushstrokes of his era, and he was just the lucky fool who held the brush. The art matters, not the artist. And if that's the case, what do we do about Hitler? When Adolf Hitler was a kid... He wanted to be an artist. Like many sociopaths, his mother was very permissive and his father was an angry, abusive asshole. Fuck your art, he said. You're going to tech school where you can learn a real trade. Well, his dad died, and so when Adolf was 18, he moved to Vienna to become a real artist. He applied to the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts, but they found his drawings to be substandard. So he applied a second time, and again he was rejected. Hitler talked about how much that rejection hurt later in a little book called Mein Kampf. He had to admit to himself that he would never make a living from his art. It was around that time he got interested in politics. But here's the thing, Hitler's art, it's not bad. Some of his landscape watercolors are quite good, actually, and nobody's going to hang them on a wall because, you know, he committed mass genocide and killed millions of people. John Wayne Gacy is also an accomplished artist. The serial killer has a whole series of paintings of his clown alter ego pogo i looked them up and now it's going to be hard to sleep tonight i mean they're good but knowing who painted them still gives me the willies and yet gacy's artwork continues to sell on murderbilia websites along with hitler's watercolors so what's the difference between enjoying thriller and enjoying pogo with his brightly colored balloons if the artist doesn't matter Why shouldn't we enjoy these works of art too? Here's why, here's the difference. Hitler's art and Gacy's art didn't survive on their own merit. Hitler's watercolors are arguably good, but nobody wanted to buy them until he had killed six million Jews. Nobody wanted to buy Gacy's creepy clown paintings until he killed 33 young men. The people buying this artwork are not motivated by the art, but by the author. the exact reverse of what Bart was trying to suggest. Perhaps the litmus test for whether we can enjoy a criminal's work of art should be whether the art was created before they committed their crime. Or at least before we knew about their crime. We like thriller because it captured a moment in time and distilled its beauty and wonder. And it broke our hearts to find out what the artist turned out to be. And for that reason, we can keep playing it if we want to. But Hitler's watercolors... Fucking let them burn. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the Stay Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Talking Pints, a clever way to mix up a fresh conversation. Available now at Uncommon Goods. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.